This is the Power to Podcast, show 71. Now it's, okay, what is the ownership piece? Like, how can you embed ownership for the students in the classroom every single day? Can you even do that with the expectations? So, for instance, on our campus, we did that with classroom um, treatment agreements. Welcome to a real-world education with insight and advice from teachers in the game, where current and former educators reveal what truly sets apart the great teachers and what it takes to make a positive impact on students. Whether you're in pre-service learning, new to the game, or a seasoned veteran, this is the show for you. You'll leave feeling inspired to take action because we are powering education by empowering you. What's going on, everyone? This is Ken Herman, host of the Power to Podcast, and I'm here with my co-host, Mr. Matt, the number one draft pick, Rogers. Matt, what is going on? Buddy, I am doing super well. Even better after that nickname, huh? Yeah. How did I earn number one? Well, we, we talk about my background in subbing. Our, our guest tonight, uh, Joshua Stamper, was fantastic. He talks about his start as a paraprofessional. We were not nearly as good as you, who was hired on day one after graduation. So you're the the number one draft pick. Consider me a five star recruit. I appreciate it, everyone. <laughs> no big deal. I do not have the credit of teacher of the year or anything like that, but <laughs> it's all good. So Matt, you you did recently. You were up for uh, nomination for a teaching award, uh, which you you did not win, but you were in the finals category. You were invited to the celebration. Um, so just just talk to us about that. What was what was it like to be recognized, honored, um, just a part of a positive experience? You know, I um, so uh, the the award was called the Citadel Heart of Learning um, Award. And Citadel is a credit union um, in the, you know, Philadelphia, you know, suburbs. It go, ranges from, you know, New Jersey all the way to Harrisburg, maybe a little beyond Um and so I was the elementary representative from uh, Lancaster County, which was very, very cool. And it's based off the one of the local IUs partnered with the credit union, and they put a heck of an event together. Um, there's a, a beautiful um, venue called the Man Center in, outside of Philadelphia in Fairmount Park. And so... They invited my entire family to come and they had a full-fledged presentation and, you know, Ken, it's a little bit different than your experience and a lot of our guests' experience where, you know, you get nominated by parents or coworkers or what have you, but you go through this rigorous process of kind of proving that you deserve to be teacher of the year. Um, This was just an appreciation experience. And I thought that was really fascinating. You know, I sit in that that position recognizing that I'm not even the most caring educator in my household most days. My wife just pours out this. And I just, I felt like what I appreciated most from the event was the message that an outside education company said a as many teachers that we could recognize, we will recognize. So it's 10 from elementary, middle, and high school. 
with this idea of just continuing to spread the word where there was financial compensation. And, you know, I got my kids interviewed in this beautifully edited video and some gifts that I got to bring back to my classroom. But more than anything, you know, validation that what we're doing in the classroom is appreciated by the community. And I think that was the biggest gain because it is very possible that I go the rest of my career without having any sort of award or, you know, banquet by any means. Um, just kids that love me and that I love and, and that's totally fine. Um, but it was really neat to get dressed up and represent Pequoy Valley and my family um, and get to go on stage and say a few things and do a, you know, the whole red carpet affair. It was fantastic. And, and I just hope that as many educators get to experience something like that as possible. Yeah. And, you know, not even necessarily for an award or a celebration like that, but just finding ways to, as administrators, making sure that you are showing appreciation towards your staff. You're doing things that are different, that don't necessarily cost money. Sometimes they cost money, but things that actually legitimately recognize the dedication that they put into your school or doing it amongst your your colleagues as well. You know, putting signs out in front of a school is nice for Teacher Appreciation Day, but that's not the same as, as doing an actual gesture, whether it is, you know, providing coffee or it's, you know, extending lunch or it's taking their duty or it's writing them an individual note saying you are a special teacher because those personal touches, I, I think, are, are so important to do. Um, I, I, I don't want to take away from, from what you're sharing there, but I actually have a, a story from my past week that kind of connects to our show tonight. So we had, like I said, we had Josh Damper, who is an assistant principal and is completely focused on making a difference in students' lives. And he talks a lot about his own personal experience. He talks about the systems he has in place, the systems he's creating with teachers. And he clearly is making a difference to help students, all students feel that they're a part of the school community, but more so the students that are facing challenges and trauma and so my, my connection to this is I recently traveled to Florida to visit um, an aunt uh, of my, my wife's aunt who we hadn't seen in two and a half years. And so I'm on the plane with my, my four-year-old, my two-year-old, and my 10-month-old. My and on our flight home, I said to my son, when he was a little bit less overwhelmed on the second flight, I said, look to the left when we get in, you can see the cockpit where the pilots fly. And I said, you know, wave to them, say hi, and say thank you for flying me. So my son says this and the pilot turns around and says, oh, come on back. I want to show you. So my son walks up. He's looking at all the things. He said, no, no, no. He's like, let me get out of the way. So the pilot gets out of the cockpit, picks my son up, puts him in the seat, moves the seat forward so that he can touch the steering wheel and grab the steering wheel, shows him some stuff, gives him his like wings, his pin wings. And then we, we head to our seats. And none of that had to happen. That pilot didn't have to do any of that. And he went out of his way for my son to have a memorable experience. He's been wearing that pin 24 seven, except for sleeping because it probably is not <laughs> as a, a hazard thing to do, um, <laughs> which I had to explain to him why he wore it to school. Then on Monday, he's wearing it all day. He was playing pilot. You know, he, that pilot made a lasting impact on my son, probably for the rest of his life. And that is something that we can do as educators. And that's something that Josh is very evident evidently trying to 
um, do himself as well as portray onto his teachers about doing things to make a difference, doing things to make students feel special. And, you know, we have the rare opportunity as educators to do it every day. Um, you know, there are other people have opportunities and jobs that they have and positions and volunteer work. But as educators, we really have the gift of, of time to be able to do that every day for a large amount of people, a large amount of students. And so, you know, I'm just very appreciative of what that, that pilot did. And I thought it was a great, a great connection to our, to our guests tonight. And our guest also tonight uh, introduces um, something that we've heard a couple of weeks on the podcast now, a, a short advertisement, not really an advertisement, but just a, a plug that we are now a part of the Teach Better podcast network. And Josh is a part of the Teach Better team and shares a little bit more information as to what that is. So without any further delay, I do want to jump into this uh, conversation with Josh. So you're going to hear that plug from the Teach Better network, and then we're going to jump right into that interview. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. Hi, Josh. Welcome to the Powered Up Podcast. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing awesome. See two wonderful educators like yourself. I am extremely excited for our conversation tonight. Absolutely. We're super excited to have you here. So kick things off for us. Officially introduce yourself to our audience. Let us know where you are coming from and just give us a snapshot of your career in education. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So I'm doing a lot of different things right now. I'm an administrator, assistant principal at a middle school up in the North Texas area, I'm just north of Dallas in the Frisco um, school district. And I've been in education for 18 years. I've gone everywhere from a paraprofessional, paraprofessional teacher to administrator. And honestly, I, I didn't expect to be in education at all growing up. I hated school. So um, my mom still laughs at me till this day because um, I wanted to run out of the building as quickly as possible. But I think that kind of drove me back in because I wanted to change education and, and make it a, a better place for the students um, now. So um, actually... I went to college to become an artist and really had no um, desire to make a lot of money or anything. I just wanted to create and um, I was a graphic designer for three years, but the economy crashed and suddenly my job was dissolved and I was scrambling to figure out very quickly what I wanted to do with the rest of my life and went to my wife and had a great conversation and she just asked like, what are your two passions? What, what do you want to do? And I love art and I love sports. And as you can tell behind me, I've got all this sports memorabilia. So um, the only thing that I could think of was being a teacher and a coach. <laughs> so I went back to college and got my teaching degree and the economy was still really, really bad. So everything that I was looking at, um, there wasn't really a whole lot of jobs. And so my in-laws moved down to Texas and they said, hey, the, the job market down here is booming. You should come down. And I told my wife, hey, we'll fly down. If we get jobs over the weekend, then we'll move. I didn't really think it was going to happen, but sure enough, of course, we, we got jobs that weekend. And so packed up the family and, and uh, moved down here. And I was an art teacher for six years. And during that time, I got to coach football, basketball, and track. My third year into teaching, I got tapped on the shoulder while I was trying to get some coffee in the morning. And my AP said, hey, I think you should be an administrator someday. I laughed at him because I didn't actually think he was being serious. Um, I was just learning how to be a teacher. I just started coaching. And he was like, no, I really think you should look into it. So again, I had a very um, wonderful conversation with my wife. And a month later, 
got into a, a master's program to become an administrator. Three years later, I got to become a dean of students, which was taking on mostly the discipline for the campus. Um, still doing like T-tests and stuff as far as teacher evaluation and, and working with departments, but uh, mainly I was working with student discipline. Following year, I got promoted to being an assistant principal, and I've been an assistant principal now for eight years, and that's where I am currently. I'm also a podcaster. I aspire to lead podcasts, author of Aspire to Lead, and I also work for the Teach Better team as the podcast network manager. So there is a lot of facets that I, I definitely <laughs> want to jump into there. Um, what I what I want to start off with real quick before we jump into the the things that are a more bulk of your career. You mentioned being a, a paraprofessional. So yeah, my first year when I entered education and I graduated from college, the job market was similar in terms of teaching, where there was really nothing available. There was there was a couple LTS positions. There weren't contract positions. You know, when I when I first went to college, I always joked that I hope I can land in Boxer Montgomery County, where I currently live in Pennsylvania, and if I can't. I'll just get a job in Philly for a couple of years and, you know, build up my resume before I can transition into one of the more affluent districts, um, not knocking Philadelphia at all. Well, there weren't even jobs in Philadelphia when I graduated. And so I spent a year subbing and I always describe subbing as the best worst experience I've ever had in education because I learned so much about teaching, but I hated being a sub because it was just a <laughs> grueling experience. So I have never worked as a paraprofessional, but I would venture to guess that it was maybe something similar where you are, you know, not in that full-time teaching position that you're aspiring to be a part of, but I would have to imagine you learned a lot. So can you just speak to like, are there things that you learned or that you gained insight on as a paraprofessional that you feel had a positive impact on your teaching career? Oh, for sure. I think it was the greatest thing as far as setting up my educational career, honestly. I... At the time, I was just looking for a job and to find some way to bring in some income, but I also wanted to make sure that I was getting some experience within the educational field. Obviously, I had no experience other than being a student, and that was vastly different than what the educational system looked like as I was going into college. So I was going to college at night, but I needed to find some income for the daytime. So I was doing the paraprofessional. And then in Minnesota, you can actually be a para and a coach at the same time. So um, I got to coach with the high school team I'm in the local high school. I was a paraprofessional at the junior high. And then I also did some coaching with some private teams also. So that was my way of making income while I was going to school. But then I also was getting that experience. And I had the pleasure of, of working one-on-one -on -one with a, a student that had spina bifida. I was also in the um, special education unit that had emotional disturbed uh, students. So, you know, there was a lot of escalating behaviors. I found a lot of amazing strategies to use with students that were upset, um, that escalated quickly, that had unregulated emotions. And the team that I worked with was just fabulous. Um, the, the lead special education teacher for that school was actually the varsity um, soccer coach also. So I had a really like great relationship with him because I work with him in the day and then I also work with him in the evening with, with those kids. So um, I thought it was phenomenal. It's something that I still use today as an administrator. I mean, not today, literally, I was, you know, working with a student that was escalated and I was still using the same, you know, strategies that I learned as a paraprofessional. And I, in fact, I almost changed my major and went into special education because that experience was so beneficial. And I, I loved working with those students. I, I figured if I could work with a student that was escalated and was really having some 
um, problems in the educational system that I could work with any student. And I, I really felt like that set me up to, to become a better teacher um, when I got a chance to, to be an art teacher for those six years. I will, uh, you know, so I have a slightly different background and we've um, talked about it slightly in our, our podcast journey, but I uh, graduated and started teaching in a contracted position the day after I graduated. So I graduated in December and went right in. And I've mentioned this in the past that I'm envious of Ken and those, you know, having the foresight and saying, oh, I have a contractor position. I didn't, you know, very lucky and blessed to have that situation. Um, and I know that subbing is grueling when you don't know when that permanent position is going to come. Um, that's probably the hardest part is the anxiety beside, hey, I'm trying to make a good impression or realistically, are districts actually interested in having me as a uh, employee or am I just filling a need temporarily, which is really, you know, a, a challenging position to be in. I find it interesting, your paraprofessional, you know, from the education side of things, it seems like, you know, not ma necessarily maturity wise, but, you know, you had the opportunity to walk into a functioning classroom that you could, you know, take tips and suggestions, what you like, what you didn't like, as what Ken often would talk about by being a substitute, but you were watching from the person leading. So, you know, consider it bonus student teaching or whatever the case may be, um, you know, slightly better paid than student teaching, maybe. Um, unfortunately, those paraprofessionals don't get paid nearly what they really bring to a school environment. But, you know, you mentioned that you use those de-escalation skills and that experience really guides how you view education. I guess, what are some of those things that you learned early on? What are those, you know, if you could speak to those de-escalation skills or other feature that you're like, man, I saw that and that light bulb was, you know, right there. Hey, I can, I'm seeing myself do this as a full-time teacher or any of those other features since you were lucky to be in such a good team? Yeah, I think it kind of set the the tone for how I viewed education just in general. I mean, obviously, I I, I didn't feel like I was, I didn't fit the mold of, of a excellent student. I didn't feel like the system really was tailored for me individually. And I, I knew that was for a, a lot of other students also. And then I also saw that occurring in, in the special ed unit. A lot of those kids didn't feel like they were very successful in the classroom. However, when we were able to take them aside and to work with them in small groups, you know, they did find success and you could see just the joy on their face when the, that clicked for them. And then, you know, to even see them grow, to find their place in the classroom and, and be successful in that environment was, was fun too. But, you know, now I work so heavily in restorative practices and trauma-informed strategies that I feel like it's it's still embedded with what I was doing as a para. Like I didn't know what that really was at the time, but you know, being a dean of students, I was using three things. I was using detentions, ISS and OSS. I mean, that was all in my toolbox and that's all I used. And um, I was in, at the time I was in a Title I school and there was some really struggling needs that were happening, not only in the community, but in the school. And, and we had some really hurt kids that were trying just to function just in life. And I was sending them back into the community just to get into more trouble and, and be even 
you know, a lot more lost than they were on that day. So, you know, I was frustrated myself and my wife, we went through, um, foster care training. Uh, we're foster parents. We've been for 10 years now. We've got three adopted boys. We actually have a foster placement now. And we went through what's called a TBRI and it's a trauma-based, um, trauma-informed based strategies. And that's through pr uh, Professor Purvis at TCU. And I mean, honestly, that opened up my eyes to a whole new situation as far as trauma, chronic stress, how it affects the body, you know, all, all of these things that we can't put a name to when we see the behavior, but the behavior is telling us that there's some really um, struggling needs that these students are going through every single day and our schools are just not meeting them. And so I was trying to figure out like, what does that look like as an administrator? How can I switch and change my strategies to make it so that these students can be more successful and we're hitting the social emotional needs, um, not just the academics. Because if I've got a kid that's, you know, upset and storming out the, the room and, you know, cussing in the hallways and, and whatnot, and they're escalated, well, obviously no learning is occurring. So like, what are my strategies that I'm going to be used to de-escalate them, to be able to get them back into that environment to be successful? So, you know, at the time as a paraprofessional, I didn't know what I was doing. Like you said, Matt, I was just learning from the experts around me and trying to take it all in, but you know, it's still in line with what I do today. I don't know if you mind me challenging you, um, but this is something I've been thinking about quite a bit. You know, you have this experience of trauma informed, and I think even in the best districts, you know, in Pleasantville, Pennsylvania, or, you know, whatever um, great situation you could walk into, people are dealing with uh, more trauma than we've ever experienced. Um, a lot of times it's been shielded, and we're seeing it in a variety of different ways. One of the things that I've been thinking about quite a bit is, you know, our role as educators, and we keep on stressing um, that we need to have empathy and we need to support kids and we need to, you know, recognize the baggage that they're coming to the classroom with. And I, I guess my challenge, and this might be the, you know, social emotional learning, the, um, the idea of trauma informed practice, but how much do you feel like, you know, it's it's good to have empathy, but that's the slippery slope of not having high expectations compared to almost, you know, not in a harsh way, holding to a high standard and keeping very rigid expectations that are not questioned and requesting the kids to rise up to it. Because um, I find myself, you know, struggling with, I want to accept what the kids are going through and say, oh, you know, it's okay. This is fine. You know, I know you have a lot going on. And then I also find myself saying, well, that ends up, you know, setting up for further tumbling. On the flip side, you know, I don't have kids. Ken has kids. You have kids. I, I uh, am unfortunate to have, you know, the, the at-home experience of having kids. But there's the what is a better situation of saying, hey, I have high expectations and there are consistent guidelines that are there every single day. And you know the consequence if you're not going to meet it. And just kind of what is that, you know, there is obviously a middle ground, but which way do you lean, especially with the sensitivity of kids right now? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, Matt. Um you're right. I mean, as far as a parent, so what I like to talk with the educators about is the the sense of being a parent and being 
a administrator or an educator, right? So like a lot of the strategies that we do at home, we don't accept in the educational environment. And the question is why not, right? I am not going to send my, my kid to their room for eight hours to think about what they did wrong. I just wouldn't. I mean, that, that would be cruel. <laughs> so what would I do as a parent? Right. And, you know, I'm, I'm not looking to, to get into parenting one-on-one here. And, you know, a lot of people have a lot of like passionate beliefs as far as what a parent, you know, what are the consequences at home? But so what I'm saying in to my staff and to my, to my educators is that Yes. So for instance, the data, right? 70% of all students have gone through trauma, at least one form of trauma. It doesn't matter where you are in the United States, around the world, you at least have one form of trauma. And that's the norm. So we got to make sure that we understand that, you know, when I'm having a student run down the hallway, I'm not, I'm not yelling at them because I understand that the most likely seven out of 10 students are probably going to have a negative adverse effect coming back at me, um, saying something that we probably don't want to hear. So like, what are some of those strategies that I can address in the hallway to make it so that's a, a positive experience for that student while still addressing the behavior that is unwarranted in the hallway? Same thing with the classroom, right? So yes, there are rules and regulations and things that are, are supposed to happen that we have high um, expectations for our kids. But a lot of times with students in, tra in traumatic situations, they feel like they have no ownership in any of the decisions. And then when they come to school, they're told for eight hours, no, 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 don't do that. Right. So then what are we going to get? We're going to get pushback. Right. And that's why we see why, whatnot. And then you add the pandemic where they've been at home for two years. And a lot of those students, they were home alone because their parents were trying to make a living and trying to you know, pay the bills. So now we've got students that for two years did whatever they want, whenever they want. And now are in a building for eight hours being told what to do. So, of course, what are we seeing at, at the schools? Behavior and discipline going way up. And the teachers are saying, well, what's going on? What are we going to do? So now it's, a, okay, what is the ownership piece? Like, how can you embed ownership for the students in the classroom every single day? Can you even do that with the expectations? So for instance, on our campus, we did that with classroom um, treatment agreements. So how are you going to treat each other? So treatment from student to student, student to teacher, teacher to student. They love that one, right? Telling teacher how they want to be treated. And so we get ownership in that in every single class. It's not a set in stone thing. So as the school year goes on, it is something that should be, you know, talked about often. It should be manipulated. So for instance, if technology, let's say cell phones is an issue, right? Um, in October, we start to see an increase in that. Well, is it in the treatment agreement? Well, no. So what can we write as a positive language to say that the phones should be put away? Something that's manipulated and that's, again, agreed upon. So that way, then the students are starting to make each other accountable for something that they all agreed upon early on. So again, this isn't like a silver bullet. This isn't going to solve everything, but it's a step in the right direction. The same with consequences. Restorative practices, unfortunately, it's it's becoming this like negative term of like kumbaya, we're going to hold hands. And that's not what it's about. It's about additional support to teach the students the behavior that we want to see. Because a lot of times, especially in middle school and high school, we look at these students, they look like adults. We assume that they have the skills as adults, but a lot of times that's not the case. And a lot of times they haven't been taught how to work through really difficult situations, how to calm themselves down, how to work through stress, how to, a lot of these students, I mean, they have no one telling them to go to bed. They have no one to tell them when to eat. I mean, these are, these are students that are trying to go through life without much um, support. 
And then when they get to school and we just assume that all of these things have been provided to them and these lessons have been taught. And, you know, you talked about empathy before, Matt. A lot of our students don't even know what empathy is. They could, they, if you ask them what that word even means, they couldn't tell you. You know, and then we just expect that they have empathy towards others and there, of course, is a lack thereof. So, you know, when we talk about social emotional learning, we're literally teaching them social skills. We're teaching them how to even identify their own emotions, how to, you know, show those emotions to other people. And, and it's almost a decoding and a vocabulary that, that we just assume too often that, the, you know, the students even understand. So, I mean... I'm giving a very long answer, but there's so many things I think in school that we need to start addressing because before we just, you know, relied on what's occurring at home and that can't be the case anymore. Like if, if that doesn't happen at home, then it's got to happen at school and we got to make sure that that's important to us that we actually carve out a little bit of time. And I know that the state is pushing us as far as the data and making sure everyone's, you know, academically successful. But I mean, if you, as we all know, as a first year teacher, second year teacher, third year teacher, classroom management is a huge piece of the um, success of your students in that classroom. And if you don't address that and you put that to the wayside, it's going to be pure chaos. And then the academics are to the side and they don't get addressed. So I think it all is wrapped into one, right? The social emotional, the relationship building, the team building, the understanding of um, each emotions, the, the regulation of, of themselves, and then, you know, learning the correct behaviors still keeping them accountable, but having lessons of this is the appropriate behavior that we need to move forward with. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like you said, we, you know, maybe now more than ever, we can't rely on the fact or depend on the fact that these things are being taught at home just because of the way that a pandemic has changed the landscape. But even if they are, I actually recently just had a, a conversation with a former parent of one of my students. And over the course of about seven years, we really the elementary school that I worked in, we really worked towards creating uh, a positive behavior system. We had an acronym of PROUD that stood for five different um, principles that we really believed in that would help students not only be academically successful, but emotionally and socially successful. And the parent I was talking to, it was a very strong household. Family was very involved. And he was sharing with me how much he appreciated the fact that these messages were were not anywhere near controversial, but they were being taught and explored and reminded in the school. And it was in direct alignment with values that he wanted his own children to have. So whether it's students coming from families that don't have these conversations at all, or that are in families that do have these conversations, it's benefiting both of them just in different capacities. What I wanted to, to ask you to try to dig into more I love that idea of the treatment agreement. I, I really love that that tagline too. I've, I've heard of similar things like that, but I've never heard that that tagline. So maybe put on, on two different hats here as, a, as an administrator and as a classroom teacher for both of those audience members listening right now. So what is something that you think you've helped sustain in your school where you have people more on board with this idea of SEL and all these different components but also implementing like systematic things that they can do like this treatment agreement. So what is advice that you could give to an administrator to help build systems, to encourage teachers to do more activities like this, and then maybe also reference an activity or two that even if a teacher is not getting the admin support, it's still something that they can embed into their classroom. Yeah. So one of the major things that we've created 
as far as a system is like trying to make sure that we have tiers, right? Of like, what is a lower level infraction? Because what we were seeing, especially when I got there breaking down the data is that a lot of times students were being asked to leave the classroom environment for something as disrespect or talking out of turn or something that was disruptive, but not to the level that probably needed to be taken out of the classroom um, where they were missing anywhere between 30 and 45 minutes of classroom time um, with the experts. So what we what we implemented was a system called a push-in. And this could be done in a lot of different forms. But for our campus, um, we asked that they call the front office and someone comes to the classroom. So it could be an administrator, it can be a counselor, um, it could be just another teacher na- next door that is off. They're they're just there to walk into the classroom, take over that classroom while the teacher and the student go out into the hallway to have that real quick conversation to understand like what is going on with that student, what is the expected behavior, how are we going to change so that we can go back and be successful in that environment. And what we're finding is that those students are able to go back because those conversations are occurring, the relationship is, is getting stronger between the teacher and the student. They're getting an understanding of what's really going on because honestly, a lot of the times it's something that happened at home that is carrying over or it's something silly like on social media or you know something that's outside of school that's being brought into school. And then we can figure out, okay, is there some additional resources that this kid does need? Do they need to see the counselor? Did they not eat last night? I mean, there's a lot of components. Maybe they didn't sleep, what whatnot. So, you know, we can get to the bottom of that and then they bring them in. And, and obviously now they're still in the classroom with the teacher and they're losing that instructional time. So we've seen a lot um, of data showing a lot of success with that practice. So um, that would be something that I would highly recommend um, to anyone listening, administrator, teacher, whatnot. I mean, you don't need an administrator to do that, right? You can just ask your neighbor and teacher, hey, can you step in real quick while I talk to this kid? What we were also seeing too is like when an administrator was being called or they're sent to the office, what's happening at that point is the student and the administrator is building a strong relationship, working through all those issues. Then that student is brought back to the teacher. The teacher has no clue what's going on. You know, as administrators, we try our best to communicate what is happening with our students. But as we all know, you know, we're, we're extremely busy and sometimes that doesn't happen. So it alleviates the, the relationship building between the administrator and the student, which is important, but not the most important between teacher and student. So this this practice, you know, allows that to, to only increase and get better. Um, you know, the, the other piece, too, we do check-ins. I know that sounds elementary, but in middle school, we still do that. And it's the same purpose, right? We want to make sure that we understand where our students are when they're coming in. So we ask that our teachers always are at the door. They're saying hello to our students because data shows that, you know, engagement only increases if we do that. But also we do check-ins where, you know, there's there's funny meme numbers and whatnot. We try and stick with numbers, but like one being like, it's a terrible day, 10 being it's great. You can use the cat memes or the baby Yoda or whatever if, if you're looking for a funny middle school one. But the idea is that you're trying to capture where that kid is at that moment. Because if you're talking to a kid that's at a two and they're having a terrible day versus someone that's like an eight or a nine, I mean, that you, you just know that you're going to go at that at a different level um, with your communication. So it just kind of gives a gauge. It also, you know, a lot of our teachers do that through Google Forms so that it's anonymous. They're not having to speak in front of everybody. Um, they can share if there's a need that they need um, at that time that may require them to leave the classroom. Um, but we also know that that'll set up their day to be more successful if they get those resources. So those are two things that I can think of off the top of my head. You know, as far as administrators, circles is a big thing too. We do relationship circles in our classrooms where it's low level questions just to get to know each other. So kids learn how to listen to each other, how to be able to communicate with their classmates, but then also find relatable items. 
but then it's a system that they can also use when we're trying to restore something, right? So if they make a poor decision, for instance, if two people are almost going to get in a physical altercation, I, I like to bring the two with myself and do a restorative circle so we can understand, okay, what was the thing that caused the conflict? And then what, let's build a plan to move forward so that we don't have the same mistake. So teaching them how to you know, work through that as an adult, a young adult, versus trying to do it in the wrong manner. So it's a system that they don't even realize that they are understanding for potentially a conflict resolution later down the road. Yeah, I just I want to interject real quick, and then Matt, I'll I'll, I'll let you jump in. Um, that I love the check-in piece, and it's something I wish I did formally with my my students. I was as present as a, as I could be for the most part at the door, but that that numerical check-in, you know, like you said, you have kids at a two and eight, whatever the scale is. What I what I wish I would have no, done it for is the kids that are consistently say a seven out of ten, and then all of a sudden they're a one. Does so even if kids are consistently coming in as a three, but there there's not actually too much going on. That just might be their rating of how they view themselves or view their day. But it's when those anomalies come out of they're consistently a seven, now they're a one. That's a huge red flag of okay, something clearly is going on, and I need to talk to this student ASAP or before lunchtime or or whatever the case is. And so I think that's where that that piece is super important is is, is finding those those anomalies. Sorry, Matt, go ahead. I was, I mean, I, I guess I, I've been really, I mean, refreshed to hear what I feel like we as classroom teachers right now, right now, um, you know, do things like, um, setting the classroom rules that the kids have a, you know, voice in, so that we've all agreed to it is that classic, you know, second day of school, first day of school activity that we all look back and say, you know what, our hands all went in, we said team on three, and we all agreed to those principles. And to see an administrator, you know, pushing that same element as your way of restorative practice and guidance to teachers, that it would be more building wide. It's just really refreshing. And a few of the other things, you know, that lost instructional time, the the concept, it's just really refreshing from your position to have such a great grasp of, you know, even from the teacher's end, sometimes it feels guilt inducing to be on my side of things to say, you know what, I taught 19 other kids while you were having that conversation. I just had to trust that whatever resolution you came to was good enough because at this point I can't get myself up to speed. And so sometimes we beat ourselves up about that. So it's just refreshing to hear um, those comments. I don't want to sell you short because I am appreciating the restorative practice, really the doing the students assistant principal side of things. But I do have a few other questions. Ken, I don't know if you have anything you want to talk about that Go more. Go ahead. So one of the things that, you know, Ken and I love to have the conversation about is second career or, you know, passion informed practice. And you have an artistic background that, you know, has weaved through a coaching background that's weaved through that really fuels your love of teaching. And so sometimes when we look for things, we we've heard and talked about sharpening the sword often of, Hey, you have to be in a good headspace. You need to take time for yourself. One of the things that I've witnessed, at least in my own school is just the ability for us as teachers 
to bring out our passions in our classrooms. I have a co-teacher that started a gardening club because she loves gardening. You know, I have a guidance counselor in my building that loves problem solving. So he's created a STEM, girls in STEM club. You know, we're witnessing, you know, this revival. For Ken and I, you know, we love this podcast because we talk to incredible educators that fuel us to go tomorrow and teach better. So how has that, you know, artistic side, coaching side, I think coaching is maybe a little bit more obvious because you're making connections with kids in a different way um, and obviously uh, result-based. But how has that really also, besides the special ed, influenced the, you know, paraprofessional side, the, you know, even uh, trauma-informed practice from being a foster family, how has your artistic side shown as both a classroom teacher and even administrator, as well as your coaching side? Well, I think I have a different perspective of, of what a classroom potentially could look like. You know, like the art room is, is controlled chaos, and I thrive in that. And I think that's why it works to be an administrator too, because that's pretty much what the halls and the cafeteria duty is, is, is controlled chaos. Um, same with coaching. So I think that uh, set me up pretty well for that. I, unfortunately, I think I had to fight a stigma though, you know, going from being an art teacher to an administrator and, and trying to become an aspiring leader. There is a perception of what happens in the classroom. Um, I don't think it's fair, <laughs> but it's almost like um, I was perceived at the end. And honestly, I had district people pretty much say that in an interview process of like pretty much prove yourself, like why why do you, or how do you know what real good instruction is? Like I had to, I had to show through data of like, I, yeah, right. I, I had to say that, okay, yes, the art room is different and it's not a core class, but it's still important. And I still know how to teach within that environment and, and teach similar to what's happening in the math class and the ILA class. And then also if I'm in those classes, I know how to um, provide feedback to that teacher and um, I know what best practices are. And, you know, I also, as a teacher, and I'm getting off a little bit of a tangent, Matt, so I apologize, but like I had to do these walkthroughs with my administrators that I volunteered myself. So a assistant principal had to get 250 of these short little walkthroughs. They were like three minutes or less, and they had to log it into a computer. And, and so I got the training too, and I had the same amount as an administrator for two years in a row. And I was able to bring that to the table and say, look, I did just what everyone else did. I was in the classroom. I observed these things. I provided feedback. So I had to like prove myself as, as an art teacher. But going back to your question, I think, you know, I have a appreciation for electives, for the fine arts, for coaching, and the relationship that those folks build because of the additional time that they spend with their students after school. And so I'm the first one to say that these folks need money. <laughs> they need to have the budget. They need, they need to have the allocations. They need to have, you know, as much backing as possible because a lot of students, including myself growing up, don't go to school for any other reason to be in that play or to play that instrument or play that sport. And that's the only reason they wake up to walk through those doors every day. And that's extremely important to them. And that's probably eventually what's going to get their diploma. 
right? Not because they love math or for, because they love writing, but it's because of those electives and those, and they find a place and they find an identity in those, those courses. And it's so important. And I think, you know, we talk about intelligences also. And like, I think the arts, there is high intelligence in those areas that are overlooked. And it's something that I just want to like continue to push that, you know, we have some extremely bright people that are brilliant and are doing phenomenal things and it's overlooked too often. And we need to really amplify those young people and all of the amazing things that they're doing in, in those elective courses or on the field. I think just to echo that, you know, middle school and high school can go many different ways, but generally they go really successful or really troubled. And a lot of times the reason of that split is because you ignited the passion or the purpose. You know, in my classroom, I'm a fourth grade teacher. I'm required to teach all subjects at a great level because, you know, fourth grade level ELA skills and math skills are the minimum that kids, well, adults need to, to generally be considered literate, right? So if I can successfully give the gift of grade level instruction by fourth grade, we're going to have successful members of our community. And that's a, a goal. But the privilege i'd like to say of a middle school or high school student is to take a student that feels lost coming into you know what that purpose is and fulfill that and that's just so powerful and for you to sit here again and say you know without without favoritism because you're not allowed to show that but you know the idea of the arts and theater and music and phys ed and you know, science and technology and all these different features. If that connects with one kid, every class, you know, they have a life purpose and that steers that direction from that negative path to a most likely successful career base where they can see themselves. It's incredibly powerful. It scares the heck out of me. Like I could, I, I don't, I feel very intimidated by your position and the people in your building and in that grade level, because it's a huge responsibility and the kids can be challenging until they find that path or that motivation. So kudos to you. Not that, you know, you'll probably take all of that credit, but I think that that elective, the, the idea of finding the priority of electives and kids finding themselves is really the be the best gift of education in those intermediate grades. Now I know Ken, you have kind of an interesting side too and and Josh you can pick in as well, but you know Ken, you came from the elementary world where it was a mixed bag and you've had certain times where you taught specific curricular areas, but now that you're supporting a content focused educational staff do you feel like those mentalities or the responsibilities or the justification of education has changed compared to, you know, the elementary world where we just try to teach everything as best we can? I would say that it, it really just depends on the person. I mean, for me, the values that, that Josh was sharing about igniting those passions for kids and them finding their path to me, that's the most important thing that education is about and so I think the way I carry myself, the way I interact with teachers, the projects I choose to support, the teachers 
that I, um, you know, get heavily involved with, it, it's going to align with my passions and my beliefs and that that's right there with it. You know, I, I just find it so ironic. I, I guess I don't understand why that stigma is still out there because I, I just think our high school just had a play and teachers love seeing their former students being in the play, being in the art show. Like we all celebrate these electives so much, but then there is that, like you said, Josh, there is that stigma of like, oh, but you taught art, you taught music. Like, how are you going to help a math teacher? Well, how's a math teacher going to help a music teacher? Because it's the same, it's the same concept. And so, you know, I, I just think it's important that we, we think about what the purpose of, of education is, and it's to help students find their way. It's to help them figure out what is their gift, what is their superpower, what is their desire, what are they going to be passionate about, how are they going to find success in life, whether that is making a lot of money or it's making a little bit of money and having a healthy family or you know whatever, whatever those pieces are, it's about helping students figure out those passions and also just build skills that will carry them through whatever career they choose, whatever path they choose. Um, and it's, it's kind of the same conversation of, you know, celebrating all of the kids that are getting into college and, you know, writing up on the board, all the colleges and writing all the names underneath, you know, why isn't there a section for, you know, uh, full-time positions, like the kids that are just going into full-time work when they graduate, that should be celebrated just as much because they're doing something. As long as they're doing something beneficial for society, then they should be celebrated. So, you know, I just think it's it's one of those things that it's important for people to keep talking about. And and I think it is valuable to have someone coming from an elective background in a leadership position. So I have a have kind of a loaded question here for you, Josh. Um, you had mentioned in your intro that education was not great for you as a kid and you didn't foresee yourself being a teacher. And when you eventually went back in, you wanted to change education for the better. You wanted to make it better for students like you. So are you doing that? And what do you? What are things that you recenter yourself on to make sure that you are, are living up to that goal you set for yourself? Ouch. Yeah, I, I think I am. <laughs> Hopefully yeah, it's a good I, answer. <laughs> well, you know, it's, I know it's... you are. That's why I asked that. But well, some of the, you know, the SEO, the restorative practices and things like that, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I, I, you know, there were definitely things in our, our family growing up that I had to work through and I still work through as an adult, you know, and, and so I know that there's, I, I connect with a lot of students that are, are coming through um, some traumatic experiences growing up. And, and that's why I think I gravitate to that SEL. That's why I gravitate to being a foster parent, you know, and, and serving the community to make sure that, you know, everybody is, is hopefully, you know, you talk about success in, in a job. I'm thinking success as a human being, you know, the emotional piece um, mm -hmm. and, you know, and the relationships that they're, they're building and, um, being able to, to work through, um, more on a, a social emotional level. So, you know, the other piece too, is like, I always, I always felt assessments were the bane of my existence. Like I knew material, but I'd get to the test, I'd freeze, I would do poorly, or I knew that I didn't care about the material. I wasn't going to do the homework. And I moved on. And, and that's the thing is like every unit, it was like you had one shot, move on. It wasn't important anymore. And I've been real passionate too about standards-based grading and, and giving to students an opportunity to 
to learn at their own timeline and to be able to go back and, and reassess and to really show mastery of, of learning, not did I turn it in on time? You know, the whole grade book of we're grading on behavior versus the understanding of the material. And so that is, I mean, I don't want to talk for another hour about it, but I very well could that the, the grading system growing up was really built with a system of failure versus looking at how to be successful and like, how can we flip that on its head? And, you know, I think as I've been working on this, you know, with three different campuses, um, as far as doing standards-based grading, thankfully we've seen great success in that on all three buildings. And I can't even tell you how much positive feedback I've received from students and from parents of, we used to just go through a piece of curriculum I wouldn't understand it. And I knew I would never be able to go back to it. And I just move on to the next thing. And I wouldn't think of it as being important. And now I have an opportunity to go back, of course, you know, with tutorials and whatnot, work with the teacher, actually understand the material, be able to do, um, you know, the retest system and get a grade that represents my ability. Right. And then the other piece too, is like for those students, we do a thing called waterfall too, where if a student does well on the assessments, but does poorly on the assignments, well, why are we punishing the student with the poor assignments as they're working through the material and trying to learn that? Like, why is that negative score attached when obviously they knew the material well enough at the end of the unit and was successful and showed that they mastered it? Why would we punish them for all of their trials up to that point? And so that waterfall piece is like negating the negative assignment scores and taking the the major assessment because obviously you know they they've provided evidence to say that they understand the standards so that's one thing that i've been really championing is like let's have a grading system that truly reflects the abilities of our students i think that for anyone that hasn't really heard much about standard-based grading or hasn't dug into that much that short explanation that you provided is a great insight as to why it's so beneficial because it puts the focus on learning and it it the students start to value like learning concepts and not just not just moving past it and i i just think that's so important so you had mentioned also in the intro about the teach better network so for our dedicated listeners they may have heard a advertisement for the last two shows and and this being the third um, after our intro about us being a part of the Teach Better podcast network. So we are really excited and honored to be a part of that network. So why don't you just talk about, for anyone that hasn't heard of Teach Better, it is much more than just a podcast network. Um, it, is a, it is a community that I'm excited to start to become a, a part of more and more. So why don't you just share with our audience, what is Teach Better? What's the network about, the conference, the podcast, all, all the pieces that they can they can gain from it? Well, I'm so excited to have this podcast on the network. I, I am jumping for joy, honestly. Um, you guys do phenomenal work. So to have you a part of, of our community um, with the podcast network, I, I'm just overjoyed. So thank you both. But yeah, so that's just one component, right? The podcast network is is just one branch of a very large tree of uh, community, like you said. So the Teach Better uh, team does a lot of different things. We mostly work with school districts all over this country um, on various things. Um, you know, with standards-based grading, with um, the grid method, which is more about 
you know, students working at their own pace instead of us dictating um, the lessons for them and telling everybody when you need to learn things. Um, you know, then we also do presentations all over the place. We have our podcast network. We have a administrator mastermind. We've, you know, wherever you are within your journey as far as education, we've got something for you. And that's really what we're, we're trying to possess is that education is a really difficult job. And so many times we feel like we're on an island and there's something coming at us from all directions and, and we, we feel like we're, um, we're drowning sometimes. And so, you know, the thing about the Teach Better team that, that really allowed me to gravitate toward them was I felt that way. And this team has always uplifted me in some way. Every, every time I needed something, I found some sort of community or group um, of, of people that are passionate, that love education. They love their students. They love their community and they want to do better every single day. And so um, I had the opportunity to be at the Teach Better 19 conference in Akron, Ohio, and I got a chance to meet the team and, and so many phenomenal educators at that conference. And I just fell in love with the group. I honestly did. And I just wanted to be become involved more. So I was just seeking, like, how can I do that? How can I do that? And so uh, Jeff Gargas, Ray Hewart, uh, Chad Skrowski, those are the three main team members. And they were at the conference. And so you know, I've just kind of built my relationship with them um, over the last couple of years, three years now. And now I'm a part of the team under the uh, as the podcast network manager. And, and we really just had this vision of like, how can we get a uh, buffet, if you will, of, of different podcasts to be able to create like kind of the same vision for trying to help other people. And, and I feel like we've really curated this, this awesome group of like, you know, people for new teachers to administrators, like wherever you are, hopefully you can come to the network and find something of value for you wherever, wherever you land. And we went from literally two podcasts, just the Teach Better uh, podcast that they have, the Teach Better Talk podcast, and then uh, my podcast. And now we're at 40. We have 40 different podcasts on the network and we're just growing like crazy, including yours. And um, we're so excited to, you know, just have this just amount of information and knowledge that's free to our educators. And um, hopefully, you know, you can go to teachbetter.com slash podcast and find something that, that you enjoy. And um, like I said, there's so much on the, on the website and, you know, we even have a conference again coming up, you know, we had to take a break from COVID, but you know, October 14th through the 16th, uh, we got another amazing conference. We've got podcast row. We've got all these different events. Um, They just announced 12, phenomenal speakers uh, for that, um, including Tom Shimmer, who's on the podcast network, you know, talking about standards-based grading. If you want to learn something from about that topic, he's, he's the guru. Um, but yeah, we're going to be in Akron, Ohio again. We're at this beautiful STEM school that used to be a science museum. It's just a phenomenal space. So super excited for that. And uh, can't wait to see everyone again in person. It's, it's been way too long, but yeah, Teach Better team is phenomenal. If you need support in any way, you just let us know. You know, I don't know, Ken, <clears throat> if you feel this way, but in, I want to say six years ago, I started my master's in instructional technology because technology was what I connected with as my uh, anti-burnout from education. You know, when I when I looked at using instructional technology in my classroom, I was always excited about, you know, not necessarily the outcome, but the the process of allowing kids to be creative. And between what we've seen from 
um, the Teach Better team and, and some of these resources and what you've shared, it just continues to reinforce that idea of what we all envision education looking like. And having the community that continues to promote when we get a little down or we get a little frustrated, the idea of, okay, let me recenter and refocus what good education looks like. Um, we have, uh, uh, we're moving towards standard-based uh, grading systems as well. We've done a, a mass customized um, model for a while, which again, aligns with why we got into education in the first place. So it's just, it's really an honor for us to join that community and again, continue to be a part of what we feel like is the, the direction in education that allows students to thrive and teachers to hopefully walk away with something that allows them to go tomorrow and teach a little bit differently and connect a little bit differently and, and connect with students, curriculum, administrators, you know, have the confidence to, to just be a little bit more in tune or remember their passion. So we are, we are quite honored to, to join that group. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> so I do want to be respectful of your time and I want to jump into our last segment uh, known as the exit ticket. So the same four questions we ask every guest every week. Question number one, Josh, what is the best thing a teacher can do to make a student's school experience better? So at the middle school level, kids know when you care about them. So I would say that doing that as much as possible, because as we all know, students are awkward. They don't know who they are in middle school. And if you remember like who your favorite middle school teacher was, it wasn't about the content or how they taught it. It was about how they made you feel. And if they cared about you and they really were diving in, trying to figure out, you know, what you needed on that day. And so, you know, I try to remind my staff of that often because I think it's easy to think about content, content, content. And yes, that's important. But how you make that student feel and how you relate to them and how you build that relationship is going to be something that lasts with them for their entire life. So in your position, you're often giving the advice. But the next question is, what is the best piece of advice that you've received, maybe that you think of frequently? And it could be from a colleague, a supervisor, or honestly, even from a student. So... I had a phenomenal assistant principal who later I got to work as her assistant principal as she's a principal, Sandra Pegram. I think her biggest thing was just get your hands dirty, like be active. Um, you know, of course, this is from a teacher trying to be, you know, a leader on the on the building. But I think it goes for anyone because, you know, honestly, I, I and I truly believe this. I say this on my podcast all the time. It was written in my book, like every educator is a leader, like you're leading someone every single day. If you If you realize it or not, you're doing it. So I think so many times I think we're, we're passive in, in a lot of our, our thoughts and we think, okay, like you have a brilliant idea, but you just leave it in that space and you don't do anything with it. And there's a lot of fear with that. And depending who your administration is as a teacher too, might have some um, sway in that because a lot of times the answer is no, but you know, the activation piece is so important, like to go out there on a limb to provide a solution or to find your passion to, you know, create something. Maybe it's a program or, you know, 
there's a lot of variations to that, but I think there's so many good ideas that die in education. And I would love to see people push through that and to actively engage with those solutions or ideas to see what truly can be possible. And for my administrators out there who are listening, get out of the way, say yes, and get out of the way. That's fantastic. Um, I, I, that aligns very much with what I would say. Now, the next question you're not allowed to say, just tune into the Teach Better Network, but, um, <laughs> you know, the school year goes in waves. And so there are days and, you know, maybe even weeks that we struggle just to survive. And what is a message that you could pass on that every educator could benefit to help power through that moment of struggle? Take care of your own mental health. I think mental health is another stigma, right? Like that you need to ignore it. You need to push through and get your job done. And I think too, in education, like mental health days, you feel guilty for taking days off and taking care of yourself. And I want to assure everyone that those days are provided to you. Use them. Take the day off. Go do something you love. Refresh yourself. Because if you're not refreshed, you are no good to your students. You're no good to your parents. You're no good to your school. And I think mental health just in general, we talk about it a lot, but we do nothing about it, especially as administrators, right? We, we like to have the trainings, but then we don't provide the time for people to actually get themselves in the right mental space. So, you know, for a teacher, take care of yourself. It is a grueling job and the school year is very, very difficult, especially this school year. So don't feel guilty for taking the time that you need to get yourself right. That, that would be my advice, especially right now. It's really good advice and it's advice Matt needs to hear more often than he, <laughs> than he really should. Yeah. Uh, so last question here before Matt's request it is easy to fall into facilitating a repetitive classroom. What do you think separates teachers who are constantly seeking change, innovation, and implementing new teaching strategies? Say that again one more time, Ken. So it's easy to fall into facilitating a repetitive classroom where you're kind of doing the same thing day in, day out, year in and year out. What do you think is, is in those teachers that uh, separates them as the ones who are constantly seeking to change and innovate their classroom and implement new teaching strategies. I guess it comes down to what you what you value, right? What are you trying to get out of it? I mean, for the for the person who makes the entire year's amount of copies the first week of school, like what are the what are their values? What are they trying to get as the outcome of their school year versus the student versus the teacher that's planning per week? and changing the way that they're doing the lessons each year. You know, I, I don't, I challenge my staff every single school year to do something new because as a school, we shouldn't be stagnant. You know, if we're in a place that we want repetition, then you need to move on to somewhere else, you know, that, that thrives in that. Like there are definitely schools that you could do that every single day as far as the repetitiveness, do the same lessons, the same units, the same assessments, and be very successful. But that's not who I'm looking for. You know, education is morphing and, and changing every day. And I want staff to be able to, to change with that. I mean, obviously, and I tell my staff this all the time, our students are going to be in professions and in jobs that we have no clue what they are. I mean, think of it 10 years ago. If you told me that a drone pilot is one of the most sought after job in the United States, 
I couldn't tell you what that is. I, you know, I still to this day, I mean, I, don't, I mean, I have an idea, but I don't, really don't have an idea what that is. You know, how do I prepare my students to, to do that profession, right? So there's so many things that are going to be created in the next 10 years for our students. And that's, that's the thing when we talk about future ready skills, like, are we truly doing that? Are we really preparing our students for success in the professional world? Or are we just looking at rote learning? Because the rote learning is not going to create a drone pilot. I'm sorry. So like, what are the, those skills, you know, you know, you talk about the future ready of, you know, the, um, communication skills that, the, that they're going to need to possess the collaboration skills, you know, I can go on that long list. Right. But, um, you know, are we really truly doing that in the classroom? And if we're doing the things that we've always done before, I can assure you that we're not preparing them for an ever changing, uh, professional environment once they graduate. And a lot of times when you think about, are, are you proud of the teaching experience or the outcome of what kids created? You know, we, we have a generation after generation of, hey, I'm going to give you a model and I have 30 replicas of that exact same model. And I know Ken and I get the chance to talk with incredible educators across this country that, you know, just little phrasing or, you know, not giving a model, but giving feedback consistently or you know here are the guidelines and letting kids run the product that kids get i think we forget sometimes how much time kids can have like i i just got an email at 10:12 at night from materials for a kids project that they want me to print out for them tomorrow now first off they shouldn't be awake right now uh, <laughs> i was going to say go to bed kid <laughs> Exactly. I don't know if that's, you know, what I want them to be working on at this point. But I was talking to my co-teacher today just about, you know, we give the opportunity to have projects that the kids choose to do over video games, choose to do over these other distractible things that are not as productive. That's a hugely, hugely powerful thing that, you know, can change in phrasing outcome and boy oh boy are you proud of what comes out at the end of it so um i know what about the connection too like yeah i want to say real quick like like going through school like i never had a connection with a lot of the materials so like i felt like who cares right but like if we create a if we provide a problem that's real life that they can associate or connect to and then they have to find the, the solution that might actually be able to be used in the community or with a business or with a school, like they're going to be so proud of that, like that, that would give so much motivation to our students. And we've seen that firsthand. So like, you know, if you can find real world problems that these students can be related to the material that you're teaching, like that is so powerful. Yeah. I just want to, I want to interject and add one more thing to this. Um, I've been working with a stat teacher for about a month now on a, a big final project that we're, he's doing for the first time. And, Real quick summary, his students are creating, they had to create survey topics and questions and pitch it to the building administrators to be valuable to survey the student body, to get then get permission to send it out to the entire student body. And so, you know, we didn't know how this was going to go. So far, it's going relatively well. And I said to him, you know, we've, we created something that aligns to what you're teaching in your class. If you create a real world experience that, uh, elicits the content of your classroom and it kind of flops, the kids still had a real world experience and then the content flopped. If you just teach your content and the content flops, 
there's there was no value gained whatsoever from that. And content flops all the time. Kids don't learn the things that we're trying to teach all the time. So the more you can do that, you're they're at least still getting something out of it, even if the content isn't a home run. Ken, I have to I have to brag a little bit because this is something you know through our conversations. So the the thing that I just got instead of me meeting with the upcoming third graders, my kids had the idea that they wanted to pre-teach everything that they would learn as fourth graders. So my kids are using Ozobots, a little codable robot, to tell different academic stories. And each one of them is telling, you know, maybe an ELA story, a math story, science and social studies. So instead of meet the your upcoming teacher, they're going to come to a carnival to learn about the content of fourth grade. You know, do I know how this is going to go? No. Do I know how I could go and talk to those third graders and give the speech of what it takes to be a fourth grader? Like the fifth grade teachers are going to and the sixth grade teachers are going to. Yeah, I could I could rattle that off with a, a little preparation, but I cannot wait to see, you know, the double-edged sword of a 10-12 email of a kid, here are the pictures I want and the text, and here's the general layout, can you approve it? I mean, not only do they look back on the fourth grade experience, but they feel like they're gifting to the third graders something to look forward to. So... The last real question that I have for you as part of our exit ticket really comes down to how we can extend this conversation. And so whether you're just kind of drawing a lens to um, the you know Teach Better Network or specifically what you have going on in your world, how can our audience continue that conversation with you best? No, for sure. You can connect with me on Twitter or Instagram at Joshua Double underscore Stamper. You can go to my website, joshstamper.com. Um, that's where you're going to find all my content as far as podcasts, blogs, um, just everything really there. And then, of course, the Teach Better team at teachbetter.com. If you want to email me, joshua at teachbetter.com, um, reach out in any way possible. I, if I can help you, of course, I, I will try my very, very best. So, yeah, those are the ways you can connect with me or interact with some of my content. Awesome. Thank you so much, Josh. I really appreciate your time. Um, I'm glad we were able to have you on and um, not only learn from you and, and hear all the value that you're offering your district, which they are clearly very, very lucky to have you in that leadership position. And I just encourage you to keep fighting the good fight that you're you're so passionate about and, and helping those students and creating those systems for them to succeed, but also to introduce the, the Teach Better Network as well. And make sure you check out their conference, which is October 12th, you said? October 14th through the 16th. 14th through the 16th. So check that out. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful to go. I still have some um, I's to dot and T's across to, to get there, but we'll see if I'm, I'm able to land there myself. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. So uh, be sure to check all of that out. We will link up to that website, the conference, your website, your podcast, all those resources in our show notes page, which can be found at powereduup.com slash so 71. And all of our resources can also be found on the Teach Better Network podcast page as well, because we we post it all there, there too. So thanks again for your time. And Mr. Rogers, why don't you shut us on down and take us on out of here? All right. As we power down this episode, um, Josh, you have left us feeling powered up. We are charged up, ready to go, and um, just appreciate the time. So everyone, be well. 
Um, best of luck wrapping up the, the last few weeks of school, and we will talk to you next week. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to or watching us on YouTube. Each week we get to talk to amazing educators. We're making a positive impact on the lives of students, their colleagues, administrators, and education as a whole. It's been such a privilege every week to be able to talk to these incredible individuals, learn from them, grow with them, and better myself and all of education through these conversations. If you haven't already, please consider sharing this with a colleague, someone who can benefit and be powered up from the experience of listening to these incredible conversations. Because of Powered Up, we are powering education by empowering you.